Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard nor ear has perceived. No eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you and your ways. But you were angry and we sinned because you hid yourself. We transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We're all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Klaus Westermann reminds us from Heidelberg University that our text today comes from a portion of the Bible called Trito Isaiah, or the third portion of Isaiah. Our best scholars believe that the scroll of Isaiah as we have it today is the work of at least three different people. The first 39 chapters, we believe, were written by a prophet who lived in the late 8th century before the Common Era. Assyria had swept down from the north, had completely destroyed the ten northern tribes, had so raped, plundered, and intermarried with them that they had ceased to exist as a separate people. The two tribes remaining, called Judah, were afraid the same fate might befall them. And a prophet of that period wrote these first 39 chapters, saying that God is sick at his stomach of smelling burned flesh. God is sick of his stomach of smelling uh, the fires and the fresh blood of the altars of sacrifice. But what he wants is people who will do justice and do righteousness. More than a hundred years after he had written, the enemy came from Babylon this time, 587, 586 before the Common Era. The people were carried away in bondage. The last images they had of their city, it was in flame. The walls of their beloved city were being torn down. It would be defenseless. The temple had been ransacked and was in flames. The palace of their king ransacked and in flames. And the king being led away in chains. They were gone 50 years when a power from farther east, ancient Persia, led by one named Cyrus, came sweeping westward and conquered the Babylonians and told the Jews they could go home. But not many went home. It was during that 50-year period that they were in Babylon that we think the second portion of the scroll was written by a different person, of course. It's been more than 100 years since the first writing had taken place. This one begins with chapter 40. That's what the tenor sings. That's what I'll be using as a text next Sunday morning. But for now, let's simply say that that portion, chapters 40 through 55, are written by Deutero or second Isaiah. Those who went home, and there were not many who went home. I remind you, most chose not to go home. They didn't remember Judah. 
the oldest ones had all died away in that 50-year period. The ones who did remember were mere children, and those images in their minds of burning, of looting, of stripping their city of everything of value must have been still embedded in their minds. Most did not go home. Those who did found that the Canaanites had reasserted themselves. They had taken over the best watering holes, the best grazing lands, the vineyards, the wheat fields. The city still lay in ruins. The walls had not been rebuilt. There was no temple on the top of Mount Moriah. That writer, Trito, or third Isaiah, wrote into that difficult circumstance. And Dr. Westermann and others believe this is a portion of that writer's work. Tear open the heavens and come down, he says. Please. In verse 3 we read, When you came down... So he's looking back to an event some 700 years before when he believed God came down, pulled back the canopies of heaven and appeared in the form of a burning bush, gave Moses a new name, accompanied Moses, sent him back to Egypt, visited plague upon plague upon the Egyptians until finally they said, go away. That same God had parted the waters of the sea. That same God led them through the desert fed them, helped them find water, and gave them the Ten Commandments. You came one time, this writer says, the mountains shook, there was unexplained fire, come down again. Do you feel that desperate ever in your life? There's a new movie out called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It is a story, a true story, of a young man in Paris. He was editor-in-chief of the French Elle magazine. At 43 years of age, he had a massive stroke. Uh, in the days that followed, his doctors discovered that only two things were working, his brain and his left eye. No vision in the right, could not move hands nor legs, could not move himself at all, but his brain was working and his left eye was working. And in the weeks that followed, they discovered that they could communicate with him by whether or not he blinked the eye. Did he blink the eye? Did he not blink the left eye? In time, a young woman was brought in who was very proficient in these kind of cases, and she would point to an alphabet board, and he would blink if he wanted a particular letter. He would not blink if he didn't want that letter. And he wrote a book, Blinking or Not Blinking the Left Eye. Two days after it was published, he had another massive stroke and died at the age of 45. The diving bell, which he saw as his body, his body descending into the depths of the sea. But his mind and his spirit he saw soaring like a butterfly. He could remember beautiful places wonderful times, great meals, special events with people whom he loved. Blinking, not blinking, he wrote a book. And the reviewer of the movie in the Wall Street Journal said, if you read his book or you see the movie, you will know for sure the butterfly rose far higher than the diving bell had sunk. Have you ever been that desperate? 
crying, tear open the heavens, O God, and come down. But the second thing this writer notes is, but we sinned, we transgressed, unclean, filthy like a rag, iniquities abounding. Some churches rush today to sing Christmas carols, but not the liturgical churches, not those who've studied the history of our faith for 2,000 years, who've discovered that Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, the more liturgical Methodist churches, Lutheran, Episcopalian, some Presbyterian, know that you do not rush to the carols yet. We will get there, not now. Now is the time for purple, symbolizing the coming of royalty, but because we are not yet like our king, whom we acknowledged last Sunday with Christ the King Sunday, then purple represents for us penitence, introspection. What good might we have done that we have not done? What harm did we do that we wish we had not done? It's a time for each person to look and be reminded of his, her own sin. When I was with Dr. Charles Allen many years ago in Houston, he told me that when he looked at a magazine, he always paid more attention to the advertisements than any other part. He said the biggest dollars in America are being spent on advertising. So note carefully what the advertisers are saying. Just recently, Dr. Robert Gorell had commented on two particular commercials he had seen on television. One of them is Ruffles Potato Chips. I've seen this commercial. It shows two Eskimos on a great expanse of frozen waste. I mean, just ice and snow as far as the eye can see in these two Eskimos. One has a bag of Ruffles Potato Chips. And he's eating one after the other. The second is just sitting there drooling. And finally, the one who has the bag says, If I were to give you one, I would have to give everybody else one. <laughs> and the tagline, If you want ruffles, you better get your own bag. But there's another. Nacho cheese Doritos. Jay Leno does this one. And Jay Leno begins to tell you how wonderful these nacho cheese Doritos are. And he's munching along as he talks to you. And the tagline is, have another, we'll make some more. Isn't that better? You want chips, you get your own bag. Have a chip, we'll make some more. Sin is that self-centeredness that somehow it's all about us when in fact it's not all about us it's all about him and what he wants done and the way he wants it done number three Dr. Walter Brueggemann says this verse is the key this verse is the key yet O Lord in Hebrew, it is, but now, O Yahweh, that name given at the burning bush, translated most often, I am who I am, but now, O I am who I am, you who once came down and made the mountain shake, you are our Father. We are clay. You are our potter. 
We're all the work of your hands. We are all your people. Which means, of course, if we but acknowledge that fact and come to this one, he might remold us. He might get this done better in each of our lives, in our lives collectively. So we're reading an article recently about Salmon Chase. You will know that name from some of the banks here in Tulsa. They're now called J.P. Morgan Chase. Once Chase Manhattan, etc. Chase from Salmon Chase. He was Secretary of the Treasury back uh, 150 years ago. Salmon Chase left home to go to Dartmouth College, 1826. He wrote to a friend not long after that a revival was sweeping the campus. Can you imagine such a thing at Dartmouth today? Pick an Ivy League school. Pick one closer to home. There's a revival sweeping the campus, he said. And in this letter, he said, frankly, I have real questions about the man Jesus. I would have to say at best, I am a skeptic. But as the revival went on, Salmon Chase wrote to one of his friends on another campus, I went forward. I was one of twelve who went forward. I believed Almighty God had led me to the foot of the cross, that my sins were forgiven by life, given new direction and purpose. After graduation from Dartmouth, he went to law school. And after he was granted membership in the bar, he was called to a young black man who had escaped slavery in the South, but had now been arrested, and there was going to be a trial. Should he be sent back south to a life of slavery again, Salmon Chase represented him. And he did it so well that it took only a short time that he was known as the lawyer you want if you're going to defend black people who've run away from slavery. He became their spokesman. Later he was governor of the state of Ohio, and he worked for abolition of slavery to rid the United States of America of this horrible thing forever. He was a United States senator. He worked enthusiastically, tirelessly to try to rid our nation of slavery. He was made Secretary of the Treasury. And then President Abraham Lincoln made him Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And in that capacity, he appointed the first black attorney ever to argue cases before the Supreme Court. He was also the one who suggested that all the coins in this country should have a slogan on them. If in ancient times the coinage always carried the image of the emperor, the king, then surely this country would acknowledge that we have confidence in God. The last act that Abraham Lincoln signed before he was assassinated was that act that said, All coinage in the United States shall bear the words, In God we trust. It is not enough that we trust in God. We must then be transformed to do God's work the way God wants God's work Number four, <clears throat> no one has heard, 
perceived, seen. Any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. John Wimmer has written recently that he watched the series on public broadcasting system about the war. In this case, World War II. I'm sure many of you saw the Ken Burns series on OETA. John writes that the thing that impressed him most was how much time was wasted. How many hours, weeks, months, soldiers would wait for a few moments of absolute terror. He said, I remembered the notes my father had taken about his war experience. John's father had just graduated high school, had grown up on a small farm in Indiana, 1940. Before Pearl Harbor was bombed, John's father was drafted into the service. He was sent to the South Pacific, and after Pearl Harbor and we officially entered the war, he served for a full six years in the South Pacific, a long time. Uh, John said that his memories as he was growing up was that his dad just didn't want to talk about the war. It was only years later after his father died and they were going through this little box of things that he had brought back from the war that they discovered all these notes he had made on the backs of envelopes and three by five cards, anything he could get his hands on to write something he had written and collected all these and brought them home with him. And he said he wrote more about wasted time. He was a farm boy. He had grown up being awakened before the sun rose with chores to do, breakfast, school, after school, more chores, work, work, work. And now, the waste of time. He wrote about being on a troop ship down in the South Pacific. A troop ship not, not designed to have thousands of young men being rushed off to war. And so there was not an adequate way to feed everyone. He said he got in line for breakfast one morning to discover that the line was like a serpentine in and out, back and forth around the ship. He finally got to the breakfast food just before lunch to realize that those who had eaten four hours earlier were already in line for lunch. He said, we waited and waited. One day he was below decks. He heard the anti-aircraft guns on the ship going off. That meant aircraft. That meant almost for sure kamikaze pilots. And he jumped from his bunk to start toward the exit, only to see five hundred other young men on that deck start pushing toward the one exit from the deck. He knew, I will not get out. He lay back down on his bunk to wait to die. That particular kamikaze pilot chose the ship next to theirs, flew into it. More than 400 men died. John's father was spared. For six years, he wrote, about those moments of sheer terror, but then weeks, months of waiting. He hated the rumors, the rumors that came that we're about to be sent here, we're about to be sent there, the enemy's here, the enemy's coming there. And for the average military person, no confirmation, sometimes for weeks or even months, as to what was really going on in the war. But then John writes... My father got home from the war. 
he met and married my mother. And then we came along. He and my mother sang in the choir of the Little Methodist Church where he had grown up as a boy for more than 50 years. They sang in the choir every Sunday, went to choir rehearsal every Wednesday night for more than 50 years. I tell you, he was a good husband. He was a good daddy. He was a great grandfather. And I believe much of it happened during six long years of waiting, waiting for the Lord to do a good thing.